It's good to worship together. Wow, what a great thing. We're going to continue in worship by now opening up the good book to find Christ the Savior. Jesus is the focal point of every worship and sermon that we have. We're going to pray, and I'll invite you to pray with me to ask God to send his spirit in a special way through the preaching of his word. Thank you that you love people, Lord, and that your kindness leads people to repentance. You're such a kind God, and your mercy endures forever through the shed blood of the Savior who cleanses us eternally by faith through grace in him. And so would you please use your word to remind us of Christ and the great salvation in which you have accomplished in our behalf to point to your grace so we can worship you. We just want to worship you. Our hearts were made for, for worship. We were created to worship. We long to worship. And so show us your character, how worshipable you are, Lord. And we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I can remember back to a conversation that I had maybe about seven years ago with a man. And um, this conversation was memorable for me because of who the man was. He was my pastor. I was uh, working my first job as an assistant pastor uh, for him out in the Midwest. I was a newlywed. Lizzie and I had just got married and bought our first house together. I was given the task of preaching a few times a month and leading some of the church's discipleship ministries. The church was a new church plant, but it was rapidly growing, and there were so many things for me to do. And uh, during that season, I remember this one time of sitting down with my pastor to talk him about my life. And um, I was trying to explain to him, or at least I was attempting to explain to him, of how busy I was. And um, there's one thing that my pastor said to me in response that um, I'll never forget. He looked at me after hearing what I was trying to say, and he said, James, uh, you don't know what busy is. And I was, I was kind of confused as to why he would say that to me. Um, it was kind of hard for me not to take that personal or be offended. I'm an Italian. I'm, inf- I'm offended at everything. Um, but he didn't say it in a harsh way or in, in a way that meant to be offensive, I think, meant to be offensive. He just kind of said it in this straightforward, matter-of-fact kind of way. And because of that, ever since that moment, it's been really hard for me to get what he said off my mind. Why? Uh, Well, because my life in that season was actually busy. Was I as busy as him? Absolutely not. During that season of his life, he was not only a lead pastor of a, of a rapidly growing church plant, but he, but he also worked as a vice president of a Fortune 500 company. He was married, he had a wife, and he also had four children and a dog. Um, and it was absolutely amazing to watch this man live and produce, to do everything that he was doing at work for his family and for the kingdom of God. I I haven't met many people like this man. He was and is incredibly special. But all I was trying to communicate in that conversation was that given my new life and all the new things and all the responsibilities in that season, I was just feeling a little overwhelmed and a bit tired. Um, And now, as I look back to that life season of ministry... I'm able to name what was lacking. If there's one thing in general that I would say was lacking and affecting me personally, and also the ministry at large, was the idea and practice of rest. 
Benjamin Franklin once said these words, he that can take rest is greater than he that can take cities. And so what I don't want you to hear me saying this morning as I intro this sermon to you is that there's anything wrong with hard work. Hard work is necessary. It's godly. It is, be, it is to be commended. It produces great rewards and results. But what I am saying is that there is a way of working and or staying busy that without intentional pause or rest, in the end, doesn't deliver what it promises and or leads to ruin or unsuccess. I came across this article this week put out by The Atlantic, and the article said this, workism is making Americans miserable. Work has morphed into a religious identity, promising identity, transcendence, and community, but failing to deliver. A culture that funnels its dreams of self-actualization into salary jobs or careers or career success is setting itself, itself, up, itself up for collective anxiety, mass disappointment, and inevitable burnout. Our desks or workplaces, and I'll add our calendars or agendas, were never meant to be religious altars. Think about this for a second. Someone comes up to you and says, hey, how were the holidays or how was the weekend? Well, aside from saying good, what is the second most popular uh, answer to that question? Yeah, busy. And you want to know what's weird about that? We like it that way. Like for some reason, deep down inside of us, we enjoy as people telling other people just how busy and frenetic and crazy our lives are. It says something about our culture and about ourselves. It says that we are tempted to use work or busyness as a means of identity, value, and success. Thus, the temptation inevitably becomes an undervaluing and or not practicing true, intentional, God-glorifying rest. According to Bloomberg Law, statistics show that only 48% of Americans in the workplace use all their allowed it vacation time. And to make this statistic more staggering, one in four of those people won't really vacation, but will rather take what we like to call a workcation, which means they won't turn off their phones, they'll continue to answer calls and respond to emails. Uh, this morning, I, I want to talk to you about our culture's demand to work and stay busy, but God's command to rest. And what I want to show you um, is, is why rest is, is good news through God's gracious character and intention for his creation because we are whole beings, whole beings which include body, mind, and soul. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open uh, to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23 is where we're going to be this morning. And if you look there on the screens, I've titled this sermon, The Temptation to Keep Working and Stay Busy and the Gospel of Rest. Three things I'd like to show you from our text this morning are this. Number one, God's command. Number two, our temptation. And number three, Christ's work. God's command, our temptation, Christ's work. We're going to begin our time 
together by reading through the entire text. Here we go. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie follow, that the poor of the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do all your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed, you shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingatherings at the end of the year. When you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor, three times in the year you, uh, shall all your males appear before God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The beast of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. My brothers and sisters, this indeed is the word of God. We're super thankful. Um, right now, I'm moving to point number one. I'd like to show you God's command. We've uh, been journeying through this book of Exodus for, for some, some time together. Uh, last week, we, we finished a two-part sermon series on the Ten Commandments, and this week here, we find ourselves in a section of Exodus that uh, many call the Book of the Covenant. For, for two weeks, we examined the Ten Commandments, which were God's words to Israel, where from Mount Sinai through Moses, he reminded them of his grace that brought them into relationship with himself. And through his words, Israel received ten general principles to abide by, the Ten Commandments, which go, would go on to serve and bless and keep God's people in covenant relationship with them. And so now here we are in the midst of chapters 21 through 23, and what we have in these four chapters is God elaborating on the law, diving deeper into more detail to teach Israel and how to put the Ten Commandments to use. Last week we talked a lot about that and and what they truly require through the teachings of Christ. Over the past few weeks, uh, we've did that, but, but the main idea and summary of this section of the book, chapters 21 through 23, is this. It's that true religion or relationship with God cannot be boxed off or compartmentalized, but rather that the Lord is to be given access into every aspect and category of our lives. This is what's happening in the section containing the book of the covenant. Chapters 21 through 23 are a comprehensive list which cover many different uh, types of topics, an extremely diverse amount of topics. If you slow down to read them, here's some of the topics or themes you might come across. What you'll see is rules for households. What you'll see is descriptions of capital offenses in society, instructions on how to deal with people's injuries to animals and, plant, and, and, and people, 
rules for protecting property, how to manage business and finance. In chapter 22, there's um, instruction for sexual malpractice, how to, how to manage um, humane concerns for life. And also, in chapter 2, there's a description of God's authority for the church and state. Then finally, where we are, at the end of this section, chapter 23, all of it finishes off with a description and teaching on work and rest. One commentator named J.A. Motyer said this. All of this is intended to be illustrative and exemplary rather than exhaustive. But it is nevertheless enormously demanding. God merits entrance into all of life. All of life is his arena, and God's people have a responsibility to bring all life under the scrutiny of his word and to live all of life as his word directs. So what I want to show us here, as I mentioned before, is that godliness is included even in the topic and practice of rest. Look at verses 10 through 12 with me. God says this. For in six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of, of your people may eat, and what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest. And the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Rest, 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 refreshed. What I want for us to stop and slow down to realize here is that this is the heart and intention for God for his creation. What is it? It's that people, animals, and plants in that order, i.e. his creation, would what? Rest. For what purpose? To be refreshed. God's desire for you is to be refreshed. God wants you and your person to flourish. I'm going to ask you a question. How does that make you feel? Maybe a little uncomfortable? Maybe a little bit similar to the health, wealth, and prosperity teaching that gives you the heebie-jeebies? Um, this is not that. This is the gospel straight from the scriptures. I'm showing you face-to-face. -face. The good news of the gospel for humans is that God has given them a command to rest and be blessed. Um, maybe you notice the style of language that's being used here in this text. Uh, for six years you shall sow the land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year, see six and seven, you shall let it rest. Six days, six you shall do your work, but on the seventh day, seven, you shall rest. What's happening here? Within the law, the book of the covenant, we are being brought back to the garden, to the creation account. Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, day and night, and what separated day one from day two? Rest. Day one, God worked, and then he rested. Day two, work rest. Day three, work, 
rest. Work, rest. Work, rest. Work, rest. Rest, rest. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth and all that was in them. And on the seventh day, he rested. Did you observe the work-rest pattern? That after each day of working, God actually stopped working and paused between each day of work to rest. And for one whole day, God didn't work at all. Why did God not work on the seventh day? Was he tired? Uh, did God need a break? Uh, no, God doesn't get tired. He doesn't need breaks. But rather, in the context of creation, what he was doing was setting a pattern for man to live by. And by doing this, above all else, what he was reminding us of is that we are creatures with finite limitations. And so what we need to know about our humanity is that our limitation or our creatureliness and or need for rest is not an effect of sin or the fall, but of something that was part of God's good and perfect design ever since the beginning. And so instead of boasting in our busyness, what does the gospel teach us and challenge us to do? To boast in our limitation. What a counterintuitive challenge for a culture like this to learn how to boast in limitation. Did you know that that is godly? Why? Because, because it reminds us of who we are and who God is. He is the creator. We're the, we're the creatures. And then understanding that, it sets us up to not only practice rest, but to, to value and pursue it as if it's good. Rest is holy. Rest is good. Rest is right. Rest is necessary. Like anything else, rest can be misused and or abused. James, this teaching sounds pretty elementary this morning. I'm, I'm sorry that it does. I think we all know this, but I actually don't think that the majority of us get this, including myself. And what I mean by that is I don't think that our theology of rest has actually sunk down deep into our persons. Because if it did, then I think, majoritively speaking, our calendars, especially on Sunday, as it pertains to work, would look really different. We probably would say no to many more things so to just be and enjoy God. What I want for us to see about this creation account that includes the work-rest pattern is that the Sabbath and the creation account don't just exist for us to wonder at God's creative display and or his salvation, but that it actually commands us to stop working. Think about this for a second. If you swing an ax and you chop wood, and the wood chops, and then you swing the ax and you chop wood, and then you swing the ax and you chop the wood, and you, and you just keep going, what eventually happens? Well, what eventually happens is the, the blade grows dull. And in order to continue to chop and produce results, what do you have to do? You have to try even harder. What's the dilemma with that? We're not God and we have an emptying tank. And so in order for us to keep producing results, 
effective results, we stop to sharpen the blade so that when we return to work, it actually functions a lot more easily. (laughs) This is the beauty of the Sabbath. It reveals the heart and intention for God as it pertains to human flourishing, my friends. This is beautiful. Here's a helpful quote. This writer says this. Ask any doctor and they will tell you that rest is essential for physical health. Ask any athlete and they will tell you that rest is essential for performance. Ask many of yesterday's philosophers and they will tell you that rest is essential for the mind. Leonardo da Vinci once said every now and and then go away to relax for when you come back your judgment will be sure. The Roman poet Ovid once said, take rest. A field that has rest gives bountiful crop. From a corporate context, Forbes magazine wrote, you can only work so hard and do so much in a day. Everyone needs to rest and recharge. Your productivity depends and requires rest. And so we have physicians and athletes and philosophers and poets and corporate leaders and above and beyond all else, God saying that this is how creation was made, that it cries out for and needs rest. I'm wondering when the last time was when you sat down to listen to your body and the things that it's asking you for and the ways that it needs to be tended to. When's the last time that you were in in touch with your humanity and flesh to say, body, what do you need? James, this sounds wonky. That's a wonky question. Are you getting theologically askew? Um, Actually, I'm asking you this question because of, um, of, of one of the major heresies that crept into the early church called docetism. Docetism believed that Jesus was only spirit and that he actually didn't have a body because the body, human things, flesh were evil. I'm asking this question because many Christian circles and churches, whether they know or not, have been influenced by the secular philosopher Plato who taught to taught people to value spiritual things over physical things, which is a false dichotomy that the scriptures do not make. Before the fall was flesh. Before the fall was body. Before the fall was all things physical. They belonged to God then and they belonged to God Now, and far too often, Christians overvalue the spiritual and undervalue the the physical and disregard the mental. You want to know know what it creates? It creates creates an imbalance. It creates an imbalance. It's impossible to, to, to thrive as a person, to just have the category of spiritual filled with disregard to the body and to the mind. We are whole creatures. Our whole being belongs to God. My brothers and sisters, we have to learn how to view ourselves and love ourselves the way that God views and loves ourselves. If you rest, you're going to have a healthier body. If you rest, you'll have less in stress. If you rest, you'll have deepened relationships. If you rest, you'll have more opportunities for uh, mindful reflection. If you rest, you'll have uh, greater capacity uh, for production, a greater capacity for unexpected situations and demands. And above all else, if you rest, guess what happens? You'll get to know God. 
our God indeed is a God of rest. Amen? That was point number one, God's command to rest. I'd like now to move to point number two to show you our temptation. The text, it, uh, it moves on in verse 13. The Lord keeps speaking in context of this law. And in verse 13, he says this. Pay attention to all I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Uh, what I want for us to notice about this command here, uh, it's actually pretty interesting, is that um, here we have in this detail of the law, a connection between two major laws found within the ten, a connection between commandment number one and commandment number four. The Sabbath, as we have said, is commandment number four, and commandment number one, if you remember, is this, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, that's a commandment that applies to every day of the week, but God here is reminding Israel of this fact, especially on the Sabbath, that false gods in the surrounding culture of Israel, may not even be mentioned on his day. This is why I um, have titled the sermon um, with the title I have. I want you to see uh, the contrast between busyness and work and the gospel of rest. Here's why. Uh, because I believe that work and or busyness for many of us is a God. Um, the covenant relationship here required by God for Israel was for them to only belong to him. They lived in a polytheistic world, that is, in a world with many religions and many gods. But the Lord's expectation for his people was not only that they would be different, but they would be radically different through monotheism, meaning that they would love and serve him as the one God alone, and that this Sabbath day, this holy day of rest, he would be remembered and practiced and meditated on by his people. I don't know how else to say this to, other than the way that I have already said this, and that is this. Our temptation as Americans is to keep working and stay busy on the Sabbath in a way that makes little of God and much of ourselves, which is a commandment breach. Commandments breached. Instead of setting up our lives and calendars in a way that God calls us to, knowing that he gives us power to control our situations, majoritively speaking, with our, with our agendas, our temptation to instead is to let the world and its pressures and demands set up our calendars and agendas so that we respond to its demand, which is a demand of Pharaoh, work, work, work. Don't stop working. If you didn't know that you should not work on the Sabbath, now you know. Um, and if you did know that you should not work on the Sabbath and you are working on the Sabbath, um, I'm just trying to show you what you're doing. You're not trusting God as the commander-in-chief and the provider of your life and story and family and person and bank account and food and table and everything that you can imagine that you are tempted to think that you have control of. This is what the Sabbath was meant to do, to en encourage us into the spiritual disciplines of practicing being limited creatures and depending on the one who got us through the desert. Pharaoh says, work, 
I might fire you, work harder. I will only provide for you if you work harder. Your assurance of yourself, my acceptance of you, will only happen through your performance. This is the workplace in America. Workplace says work, you'll be fired. Work and achieve and you'll get identity. If you don't work, I'm going to stop providing for you. If you take a break from your work with all the demands that, that say you may not break, the stability and confidence and hope of your future might go away. Whose voice is that? That's Satan's voice. Our Lord doesn't speak that way to his people. Your future doesn't rest on your ability to produce. Neither does your identity. There is only one who puts food on your table. There is only one who keeps and preserves your life and your family's life. There is only one who has authority to tell you who you are, and that is Christ. If you don't know how to stop working and you're addicted to it, I say with gentleness, know the sin that is keeping you. That sin is called idolatry. And know the perversion that lies behind idolatry. There's something about that idol of work or busyness that's serving you with false promise or affirmation or comfort. So you have to just try to come up with the answer to this question. Why do you work so hard or stay so busy in unhealthy ways that you know that you shouldn't? What lies beneath the surface? What fear do you have about your future? What false promise or comfort are you seeking to receive or achieve? Is there any lie that you're seeking to disprove about yourself with this foolish strategy to work and achieve? What person or life situation are you trying to avoid and or numb? You'll only come to the point of wanting to smash the idol when you recognize that the idol has done you no good. That actually has says work, 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 and it has harmed you as a person and kept you from enjoying the promises of the gospel. Can you see how your addiction, how my addiction, how our addiction and uh, practice of the culture actually drowns us into a hollow pit? There is no love, provision, or promise that could be better than the ones that Yahweh gives. He alone is trustworthy. The Sabbath was given to Israel for them to remember that all throughout the desert, as they ran out of water and bread and faced danger, that God alone saved them and kept their lives. Our identity is not found in our success. Our value is not found in staying busy. We don't hold our lives together. When will you be ready to renounce your foolish strategies of trying to be important? When will you recognize that the workplace, that God does nothing but strip and tell you to keep producing, which is actually not the gospel. The gospel never calls us to produce in order to gain or achieve. The gospel is a free grace from God where he lavishes with free grace merit and provision and promise and his son. God is the only one who has no empty tank 
It's not possible to spiritually thrive running on emptiness and or fumes. Hear this. Please hear this. Um, if, you, uh, if you don't rest, I'd, I'd say quite possibly that you may not actually understand the gospel. And I say for certain, if you don't rest, you will not know God. Law doesn't drive us to rest. Grace drives us to rest. And it gifts us with the gift of knowing and experiencing the promises of God. Um, I invite you to consider what lies beneath the surface if you're addicted to busyness or go. Um, There's freedom on the Sabbath for mercy, for piety, and necessity. But that's for another sermon. I'm attacking a God right now, a false God. I'm inviting you to consider what lies beneath the surface and search you come to the realization that stressing about, out about your life or your situation and numbing what you really feel inside actually doesn't work and is no good for your soul. Do you want to grow in relationship with God? Rest. Do you want to become more holy? Rest. Do you want to flourish as a human being? Rest. Psalm chapter 23. What does the good shepherd do for his sheep? He what? He makes them lie down in green pastures. That's a good shepherd. Amen. I'd like to finish in our last point this morning. Christ's work. As we finish our time up and, and wrap up, I want to take you to some of the smaller details found of this text concerning the, the, the festivals and holidays mentioned here. And so uh, not only uh, does Israel have this command to a weekly Sabbath rest, but you might notice how there's three other festivals mentioned here for them to obey. The first is the Feast of Unleavened Bread in verse 14. And the second is in verse 16, the Feast of Harvest and Indwelling. All of these things are meant to do the same thing, to produce the same result, rest. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, as shown in verse 15, was meant to remind Israel of their past situation in Egypt, how they, through the blood of the Lamb, after smearing by faith blood on their doorposts, were, were passed by and over by the angel of death, and their lives were spared and freed as unto God. And uh, if you look at the other two festivals there mentioned, in dwelling in harvest, these were two future festivals that were to take place at a later, land, uh, later time when they entered into the promised land. And so what we have through, through these three festivals is one feast here meant to help Israel look back and remember the redemption, and two other festivals here meant for them to look forward of the glorious future they, when they would inherit that land of glory and there would be total and complete and utter rest. Canaan, when they'd be brought into a land flowing with milk and honey, they would be gods and God would be with them and they would flourish forever. Um, and so I want to slow down and consider the person and work of Christ to show you what is true rest and how the gospel turns our head backwards and also forwards to anticipate and remember the grace that's given to our souls to really, really rest. I went over to Crunch Fitness this week to take a, to a, yes, I cheated on LA Fitness. Uh, I went over to Crunch Fitness, I changed memberships, and I, uh, I, I took a, a yoga class with a friend of mine this week. And uh, I don't know if you've ever taken yoga before, but at the end of each class, here's what happens. 
You do an awesome workout, and then the teacher has everyone lay on their backs, close their eyes, and that teacher takes them through mindfulness for the sake of meditation. So everyone's there on, on their backs, showing up for this, longing for this moment. I don't know how else to explain this, but like the air in the room is thick. Everybody wants this part right here, which is the last 15 minutes of the class, doing nothing and being still and being taken somewhere in their minds. And so I'm there with my buddy. He's a Christian. We love Christ. And the teacher is inviting us into this meditative state. Of course, we don't follow. But we follow the logic. And where the teacher was taking the 40 other people in the class, which was into this vague spiritual abyss of unknown, almost into like faraway galaxies with space and nothingness, then all to discover at the end of the meditation that their selves are the center of the universe. That they are their own peace. And it broke my heart as my, my friend and I were praying for these people in the class that in their attempt to encounter the transcendent, all they can encounter were themselves. And I'm not better than them, but God has chosen to be gracious and merciful through Christ and treat this sinner with a great gift of the gospel, which is in my meditative state, when I pray and take my mind places, where I find myself at the end of my journey is before the throne of God, where God gives himself personally and freely to human beings, and he relates on relatable ways and touches by the spirit and awakens the soul to the reality of life. This is the gift of the gospel and what we get in this fallen, depraved, and broken world. We need to do two things for the gospel, for it to click, for the Sabbath to actually produce good work. The Sabbath is here to, to help us remember the true redemption that happened to us in our sinful state when our sins were wiped away and we were filled by the Holy Spirit to encounter the face of God and did so. And then as we seek to commune with God and love God and stay in Christ and yet are prone to wonder in our idolatrous hearts who really don't rest at all. We know that there is a land coming for us of milk and honey where there will be total and complete rest. I try to Sabbath every week. You want to know what happens to me every week? I fail miserably. I really try to Sabbath, but I can't. Do you know why? As much as I try, because there's nothing in this life that is not broken that wearies my soul. I'm never brought into a real state of rest unless it's a, a moment of grace where I'm in the presence of God with you. This is life. And so Jesus, by his blood and sacrifice, opens up the doors to glory and gives us foretastes of glory even now and guarantees us as we stumble and sin and worship other things and don't rest that the access to God, the door that grants it is never closed. You always get access to God even when you stray and wander through the once and for all perfect sacrifice of Christ. You are called child and God always wants you to come commune with him. It is his will to lavish love upon you at every moment, not only just on the Sabbath. You get to have God. And God wants you to have him. And this is true rest.
Have you ever experienced true rest before? This rest, it's life-changing. And if you have and you haven't just in a while, if your faith is in Jesus, you have to do nothing to have it. All you have to do is lean on the Savior, and there God will give himself to you in full. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you would give us rest by leaving heaven and coming to earth and wiping away all of our sin and restoring in part the garden. We can't wait for everything to be restored in glory. Please take us to that land. But we pray for non-Christians, those here in this room and those in our community. We pray that we would wait patiently for your second coming so that you can save and bring more people into the land of rest. Bless us, Lord. Remind us of the treasure of our salvation. You are rest, God. And we thank you for the rest that comes alone through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.